Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Bill Aaron. Bill is an internationally renowned photographer of Jewish communities around the world. Many of the photographs taken throughout his 45-plus year career have been exhibited in major museums and galleries throughout the United States and Israel, including the Museum of Modern Art, the International Center for Photography, the Boston Museum of Fine Arts, and more. Bill gained international recognition for his first book, From the Corners of the Earth, which chronicles the Jewish communities of the former Soviet Union, Cuba, Jerusalem, New York, and Los Angeles. Bill's latest book, New Beginnings, The Triumph of 120 Cancer Survivors, focuses on survivors who have not let their cancer diagnosis prevent them from living their life to the fullest. In many cases, the diagnosis served as an impetus to better their lives. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Bill. But before I do, just a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's R-E-V-I-V-E wellness.com. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm so looking forward to our conversation. Hi, Haley. It's a pleasure to be here. So first, I would love to hear your story and just how you decided to tell other people's stories. Well, my, my story is a little bit involved, so stop me if you want me to skip to the end. But uh, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1993. I had gone to a lecture, or I, actually I had been working, I'm a photographer, and I had been working at a for this organization, photographing a lecture by an Israeli urologist who talked about this new test, the PSA, that, you know, it's great because it can diagnose prostate cancer earlier than a time when it's too late. So my next appointment, I said, uh, does this HMO do PSA tests? And he said, yeah, we do, but you don't need it. So I said, well, if you do it, I want it. He says, yeah, but you don't need it. I just examined you. I said, no, 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 do it. So I guess at that point he did it. It came back elevated. He says, that's ah, a mistake. Let's redo it. They redid it. It was still high. So I went and, and was recommended to have this surgeon who, who took out my prostate. That was the best chance treatment uh, offered at the time in the early 90s. And then he said, okay, you're good to go. Don't worry about it. And a year later, the PSA started to climb. So at that point, I was totally fed up with the uh, medical profession. So I did everything I could afford. I tried healers. I tried um, herbalists. I tried homeopathic. I even was, went for a time, went to Mexico for their alternative treatments. 
but nothing stopped. I asked my doctor, uh, the urologist, I said, well, I don't want to treat. You know, the second line of defense after surgery is radiation. So uh, that's what they wanted to do to me. And I looked up at the medical library. At that time, there was no internet or I didn't have access to it. So I went to medical libraries and it said I had a 50% chance of having permanent side effects and a 30% chance of getting the rest of the disease. So I said, well, that doesn't sound too good. (laughs) So I didn't want to treat. So the urologist said, well, you can't be my patient then. I must have called five, six different urologists in LA and none of them would take me as a patient because, you know, I wanted to track myself. I wasn't suicidal and finally found an oncologist who specializes in prostate cancer. And he says, okay, we'll make a backup plan. And at that point I had been on a macrobiotic diet. A friend of mine went to the health food store, which we used to have and bought every book on diet and cancer and dropped them off on my doorstep. And I went through them and macrobiotics made the most sense. So the PSA, you know, they have this score of virility from zero to 10. And at that point I had an eight, which is pretty close to the 10. So in 2004, the oncologist and I became uncomfortable with not treating. So he went and they did this exam and they found a large tumor in my abdomen. So we biopsied it and it was at that point, it was a Gleason 10. So we hit it with targeted radiation, which they didn't have in 93, chemotherapy and two years of hormone blockage. And since uh, 2006, I've been okay, which I credit certainly to the medical profession, but also to my diet. Now, tell me a little bit about the macrobiotic diet, because I know a lot of people in the audience aren't sure what that is. Macrobiotic diet is a plan. It's a vegan plan. But if you go on a vegan diet, you just eliminate foods and then you eat other foods. But macrobiotics offers you a plan based on balance. The major function of the whole working of the body is to maintain homeostasis, keeping everything equal, so that when it's attacked from without, say by a virus or a bacteria or by a cellular mutation, which is cancer, the immune system has maximum energy to treat whatever's going on. If you eat too much sugar, for instance, the body has to overwork to produce extra insulin. If you have too much salt, it has to produce extra potassium and so forth. And so this is a a method of balancing your foods and you have to balance everything. I mean, it's pretty labor intensive. You balance the colors of the vegetables that you eat because they each have different nutritional value. You balance the cooking styles. So because cooking changes the structure and the energy of the foods and so forth. So that if your body can keep your body in homeostasis, then you have maximum energy for your immune system. So it's a, it's a way to balance what you eat, and it's a plan. And there's um, lots and, of sea vegetables too, right? Sea vegetables contain nutrition that no other food contains, so they're very important, yeah. So basically, they say 30% whole grains, 30% vegetables, 
30% plant-based protein, and then 10% other things like sea vegetables and nuts and different things that have different nutritional value. And how many years would you say you've been doing this? Well, I started in 1993, and it's oh. 2021. That's incredible. And so people that come to my house either eat first, if they come to my house for a meal, they either eat first <laughs> or they you know, accept the macrobiotic diet. Well, I know a lot of people don't have it's not that they don't want to do that, but they think it's too much of a struggle. And I just commend you because I know it's, it's not an easy way to go, but you are doing great. You look great. So something's working. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'd love to hear what made you decide to write this book, take photographs and tell, tell these people's stories, 120 people, which is a huge undertaking. Well, alongside my commercial work as a photographer, pay the mortgage and so forth, um, I've always had projects um, and I'm, I'm known for photographing Jewish communities around the world. And there are two books out of my work in those communities. There's the former Soviet Union, Cuba, New York, Los Angeles, Jerusalem, and South Carolina. And I had the then had the opportunity to, that was my first book. Then I had the opportunity to photograph in Southeastern United States, a series of grants, uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, and Arkansas, and South Carolina. I misspoke when I said South Carolina in the first book. And that book came out, uh, Shalom Y'all. And then I was thinking about a project and I thought, just around the time that I was trying to figure out what to do next for my own sustenance, my own work. Um, I was in a support group and the fellow in the support group was saying that cancer was the best thing that ever happened to him. And I did a double take. I said, are you kidding? It's the worst thing that ever happened to me. (laughs) And he says, no, no. And he began to talk in terms about how it forced him to uh, examine his life and get rid of the things that bothered him and to adapt more things that he had always wanted to do. And as I began talking to people in this more open way, I began to see that more and more people were like that. And so I thought there's so many stories around about how terrible cancer is. Somebody should tell this, the other side of the story that if you let it, it can lead to massive changes for the better in your life. And I thought I would have trouble finding people who would agree to talk about their cancer, but that wasn't the case. Once word got out, um, people started calling me. And then I decided I wanted to tilt it more towards younger people. So I became friendly with the uh, just happened lucky circumstances, became friendly with the head of pediatric oncology in the hospital in Orange County. And he talked to a number of his families that had children who had survived cancer. So I began going around to them. And then there was a a planet cancer I found on the internet. And I wrote to the people organizing and said, look, you know, you're for under 40, I'm over 40, but I would really like to participate and 
to send messages to certain people and ask them if they want to want to uh, participate in this project. And they said, of course. And so I got a number of great people uh, from there. And, you know, word of mouth, when at, at a certain point, my publisher uh, or the editor at the publishers wrote to me and said, look, you have 120 people now. Let's call it quits and do the book. So I said, oh, 120 is a good, you know, it's a good number. And how uh, long did that take you? Well, it was an on again, off again. I mean, I, I couldn't work on it steadily, but uh, sort of in, in fits and starts. I would say book came out in 2015 and I started it around 2008. So about seven years. Incredible. And do you feel like from interviewing these survivors, did it help you in your healing journey? Did it help you look at things differently? Immeasurably. Um, <laughs> my three-year-old grandson has, de- has developed this word immeasurably. Um, you say, how much do I love you? And he smiles and says, immeasurably. <laughs> um, but these, every one of these people became my teacher. Um, I, I, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, this view of life as being half full or half empty, like the glass of water. Um, I've kind of been ambivalent about that, but it has definitely pushed me into that half full size. And when thing, you know, it, it didn't take away the annoyances that we all feel from, from time to time um, in our lives, but it didn't take them away. But it helps me, you know, when I calm down in the heat of the moment, I can't, you know, I was <laughs> just as, as an example, the other night, my having trouble with our TV. And so my wife says, well, come on, let's do something different. And I said, no, I just can't let this go. So, you know, it doesn't take that stuff away. But when you calm down, it helps put it in perspective. That really wasn't so bad. Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, bad things do happen. So, you know, you have to, you know, as the saying goes, shit happens and you just have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. And, you know, I know the survivors varied in age ethnicity, and prognosis. But what would you say was the common denominator in their stories? The common denominator was voiced by one woman who said, you don't know whether you have cancer or not. You don't know how much time you have left. So you may as well make the most of it. And I think these people had a certain outlook on life that they apparent, some of them apparently didn't have before they were diagnosed, but they wanted to survive and they wanted their lives to mean something. And I think that's why a lot of people who go through life-threatening occasions um, turn to the helping professions. Um, former drug addicts or people in recovery, as they say, um, often turn to being an addiction counselor. Um, People who have gone through cancer often turn to helping other cancer victims. And I think because it it teaches us what's important in life. Uh, One, can I read a long quote? Oh, Uh, absolutely. uh, This is by uh, a rabbi, Ed Feinstein. It says, I've come to believe in angels. 
In the most trying moments of life, angels appeared. Angels don't have wings or harps or halos. They don't float on clouds in gossamer robes. Angels are just ordinary people who do extraordinary acts of goodness and kindness and never ask anything in return. The world is filled with angels. It is only when we're most stressed, most troubled, most frightened that we see them. At those moments, their wisdom and guidance, their support and encouragement, their gentle touch make all the difference. Cancer has taught me that the goal of life is to become someone's angel. And I, I, I just, that's such an eloquent statement of what it means to value life in the complex society that we live. So true. It, it, that was so beautiful. And, you know, I noticed in reading some of their stories that they just wanted to live life more fully and they, you know, were so introspective. And I think that's what a hardship does for you. I know when I went through my diagnosis, I just really took a good hard look at my life mm -hmm. and, and knew, okay, there's things that I need to work on. There's things that I need to change. And I'm not saying that you're blaming yourself for, for right. what happened, but it just makes you want to live life differently. You know, and just in referring back to something else you asked about and, and related to this, it taught me a lot about people. Um, I, at certain point, I was thinking, geez, everybody is so articulate. And then I walked up to this house and it was a mess. The yard had never been watered. It was a rundown house. And I figured, oh, you know, these people probably are not educated. They're not going to be that. I mean, to my you know, to my embarrassment, I felt these things. Um, they're not going to be that articulate, but they don't do it anyway. They told me the most incredible and eloquent story in the book. Their, um, I think it was five-year-old, five or six-year-old son had been diagnosed with cancer. And this is a couple that was not religious. They had never gone to church, never done anything, uh, never taught their kids anything about God or religion. And she came to his hospital room one day and he wasn't there. And the nurse says, oh, he went to the chapel. And the mother sort of frowned and said, I, I, where did he get that from? So she went down to the chapel and she saw him up front. She sat in the back and he was saying, dear God, please. Boy, it just moves me to think about it. Please heal my cancer so that my mommy won't be upset anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, I, and, and she said she had no idea where that came from. And afterwards, when he came home from the hospital, they joined the local church. They became Sunday school teachers. Um, and they're more or less the pillars of their local church uh, community. So Amazing. Uh, uh, I am so embarrassed that I prejudge people like that. And it taught me not to. That's such a lesson. Cause I think we all do that. Yeah. You know, the, the saying goes, don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, 
in psychology in, in graduate school, I, I took a course in psychology and, and this professor had a very um, uh, poignant comment. He said, somebody can walk into this room that none of us have ever seen before. And every one of us will have a prejudged opinion about that person. And I've often thought of that. And I've often noticed how wrong that prejudged opinion is. We don't want to be judged, so we shouldn't judge others, right? It's it's a lesson. It's We're human, though. We're human. What's that saying? Judge not, lest ye be judged? Yes. Someplace in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was wondering, was there anything you were surprised by when interviewing these survivors? I, I, I was surprised by the, the, the parents of the young children, to tell you the truth. I mean, uh, as a parent, you think, uh, what's the worst thing that can happen other than the, the child dying? Um, but having, to have a child diagnosed with such a terrible disease and be able to see the wonderment of life around this totally shocked me. Can I get another quote? Absolutely. I was wondering if you still keep in touch. Some of them. And, and some, I, um, some I, like the family of this young girl I kept in touch with uh, just because she was, she's such a sweetheart. It's the one with all the. I the saw that. Just, she uh, has so much joy in her face. Yeah. Life is about moments. We have started to live day by day, hour by hour, and sometimes second by second. And when you sit there with those seconds seemingly so long, you realize how many of them you have. We have the luxury of seeing so many little gifts that other people don't see. The smell of my daughter's hair in the morning is such a gift. My favorite daily gift is getting to snuggle with her in the morning. She's a constant reminder that we're borrowed. She's not ours. Uh. Bye. <laughs> Amazing. You just cherish, you know, all the time you can spend. And I love that. Just smelling her hair, just those simple things. Yeah. Yeah. There was another story that I noticed the little girl, she had her head shaved and she was saying that Mm -hmm. even though she doesn't look beautiful on the outside, she's beautiful in the inside. And she was so young. I can't remember the exact age. I mean, maybe six or seven. I don't even know. Somewhere between four and six. Oh, four and six. Okay. That just blew me away. Yeah. Yeah. Manette. Um, She was the first child I photographed. And then her mother said, and she sometimes comes into her bed, the mother's bedroom in the morning. And she said, she says, she then starts laughing and singing, don't you wish your girlfriend was bald like me? Where did these kids get that? I mean, I, you know. Amazing. I mean, she's, what a sense of humor. Sense of humor and um, a sense of what's important. I mean, they're just these little kids. So it was these little kids that really affected you the most. Yeah. Oh, I, after many of them, uh, and some of them had, I, I learned, had since uh, passed away. And that was a real killer when, when I learned that. That was a child. Was that recently or a long time ago now? 
a long time ago, actually right around when the book was being published. Aww. And it just, you know, breaks your heart when you, you, you see, even, even if I, you don't have much of a relationship, but you see these kids at their best. And, you know, it's, to lose that is just tragic. But you gave the family such a gift by these photos. I mean, you capture their essence. It's just amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you. And, you know, the subjects in the book are so inspirational and offer so much hope. What do you want people that get this book to to get out of it? Let me answer it this way. Um, When I was diagnosed, I only heard of other people with similar cancers uh, by word of mouth. And I sort of like to make it a handbook. Because when when you're first diagnosed with cancer, and this was universal, everyone that I spoke to, um, and and since people that I I speak to who are diagnosed, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Haley, you feel totally alone. And it's such an aloneness. And And you look out there and you see how different you are um, Susan Sontag wrote a great little monograph called On Illness. And she says, when you're diagnosed with a serious illness, you're transported to another country. And that country, the land of sickness, has its own language, has its own mores and customs. And they're very different than the country from which you came. And the two places don't really talk to each other on a meaningful level. And I think my, my original motivation for doing the book was showing that I can't do anything about your feeling of aloneness. You're still going to feel it, but you're not alone. Yes. And eventually, as you know, um, eventually that aloneness will fade uh, and we begin to discover that we're not alone. But hopefully this book can speed up that process because that aloneness was just terrible. You're absolutely right. I can, I can, I can still, you know, I, I remember it very viscerally. I do as well because people are there for you and they, and they want to help, but you just don't feel that they understand what you're going through. So is even though you could be surrounded by people, you still feel alone. And it's really hard to describe that. Yeah. And just a a little example, I was photographing uh, at this uh, event and there was a very famous person there who had recently been diagnosed with a serious cancer. And this person came up to them and uh, said, uh, how are you? And said, oh, I'm fine. He says, no, how are you? And he says, no, I'm, I'm really fine. He says, how, no, I mean, how are you? And he kind of must have four or five times, putting different emphasis on the different words. And finally, <laughs> this man, it was just so great when he did this, I wanted to cheer he looked at him and said, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 
yeah, people don't, you know, and and people sometimes, and and also the book is for people who are close to people diagnosed with cancer to um, give them a little hint um, because people really don't know what to say. I called up a friend of mine, close friend, after I was diagnosed, and his reaction was, oh, I just read an article about that. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. Not exactly what I wanted to hear. And this was a close friend. So, yeah. <laughs> That's so true. People don't know what to say. I just interviewed someone and he talks about that. He wrote a book and interviewed different people to be able to have that conversation when things mm-hmm. are tough. Because I think as humans, we're just not good at addressing that. Yeah. We don't know what to say. Right. Right. It is difficult. Well, I love this book. I have it on my cocktail table. I look at it Thank you. very often. It just, it, it really inspires me. And even though some of the stories affect me, they could be sad, but there's so much hope. I feel like even if someone might not have a good prognosis, they have this will to live. And you know, one of my mottos is to be victorious over cancer. And that doesn't mean you're going to, you know, how people say win the battle or that someone lost the fight. To me, it's how you live, how you live with it. And even if you end up dying from it, it's how you lived before. So uh, I think this is just a perfect depiction of that. So you're so right um, that it is about how you live because I mean, you, you know, it's all we got. It's the old Woody Allen joke, if I can mention his name these days. <laughs> <laughs> Time is all we have, and there's never enough of it. Um, you know, and but I, I also want to say what you're doing to gather these stories and to do uh, these podcasts are just I I admire that ability to do that and the strength of character to really put yourself out there and do all this work to that'll go to help other people. Well, thank you. That's, that's my hope that all these stories help other people that might be feeling alone. So. And if anybody, if you know of anyone or anybody's hearing this podcast and they would like a copy of the book, I would be happy to say, you know, you don't publish books to make money. Um, So I have copies I'd be glad to just send me contact information and I'll send a book, no questions asked. Oh, that is such a nice offer. Thank you so much. Now, are you ready for random round questions? The next segment. Go ahead. (laughs) So fill in the blank. Freedom to you is. (laughs) Um, Freedom to me is being able to sleep late. Sounds good to me. (laughs) The last show you binged and loved. Oh, uh, there are several. Um, There's a French uh, series called The Bureau. It's the only show that I really had trouble stopping to go to bed. (laughs) And uh, And I would also mention there's another one I'm watching from Iceland, an Icelandic show called Trapped about a small Icelandic town that after a murder becomes isolated by a severe snowstorm. Both of those are on the caliber of 
something I think the best in American television ever was The Wire. I mean, I, I just think that is such a phenomenal show. It didn't dumb down any problem. It presented problems in all their complexity and the interweaving of all the different communities and how they influenced each other. The press, the city, the police, the drug addicts, the wealthy. I mean, I think that's the best American television has ever produced. And uh, these two are up there with that. I have a lot to catch up on. (laughs) When you're feeling afraid, what do you do? Well, I take a deep breath. (laughs) That I've learned to do. But I I have to admit, when I'm feeling fearful, um, not by somebody holding a gun on me or not by external things, but by something inside. Like if I get a bad blood test or something, when I'm feeling, I have to admit, it, it really gets me down. And it's, it's very difficult to get out of. And I have, I have a friend, that, well, my wife helps. And I have another friend that I call that um, I've been very close to over the years. I appreciate you saying that because, you know, I think a lot of men say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. And I'm always thinking, is that really true? (laughs) I have, you know, this many years after, since 2006, when I go for a blood test, I still get nervous. And when I call up to find out the results between my saying, I'm calling to find out the results of my PSA and the woman the other usually a woman says, uh, just a minute. And while I wait is unbelievably terrifying. It's been years, right? But it, yeah. you don't forget that. I'm sure your checkups that you go for are not dissimilar, maybe not as severe because <laughs> yeah. it's even a lot to, more together than I have. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> if you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present, Who would it be and why? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is Jesus. I don't want to offend anyone, but I'd like to look at him and say, really? (laughs) It's what I think, you know, it's actually one of the things I've thought about through the years. There's a wonderful um, short story by Philip Roth called The Conversion of the Jews. It's a very short story. It's about a little boy who goes to Sunday school and he raises his hand and says to the teacher, if God can do anything, why couldn't he make Mary pregnant? And this teacher says, you know, dismisses the question. So he keeps asking, he asks his parents, and finally he gets to the rabbi. And he says, if God can, ask the rabbi, if God can do anything, why can't he make Mary pregnant? And the rabbi says, oh, don't be silly. So finally he climbs up on the roof And he stands on the roof as if he's going to jump. And people notice him and they all gather around. They say, Timmy, Timmy, whatever his name was, come down, come down. And he says, I won't come down until you you answer my question. And they all say, yes, if God can do anything, he can make Mary pregnant. (laughs) He tells it much better than I can then I can reiterate it, but that's essentially it. So, I, I mean, I, I've thought about things like that in school. And, right, because and, um, we don't really know the true stories. Yeah. What is your favorite go-to snack? <laughs> I have <laughs> pretzels and saltines. <laughs> <laughs> Even though on your... 
I could go months without one. And then I'll just, I'll, I'll buy a, bo- a bag of pretzels or a box of saltines without salt. And I'll just eat it within a week. I'll finish it all. <laughs> I always say, if you deprive yourself, you're just going to want to go crazy. So it's good that once in a while you do that. Well, it's called, you know, macrobiotics is called discharge. When I first began to eat a macrobiotic diet, you know, it's got no cheese, no meat, no sugar in the beginning. And I, I had never liked pizza all that much growing up. You know, it was good. I ate it. But I used to wake up with the taste of pizza in my mouth. I used to dream about it. <laughs> so, but that's luck of thankfully faded. Well, <laughs> that's a big no-no. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bigger no-no than On that macrobiotic <laughs> diet, yes. <laughs> What's one simple thing that brings you joy? Having dinner with my kids and my family, my nuclear family. What's on your nightstand? A back scratcher. (laughs) (laughs) No, (laughs) Um, I'm trying to think of the things on my nightstand. A back scratcher, really a back scratcher and a a, uh, nightlife, uh, a light, a nightlight. And I won't say the other things because I'd be embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favorite form of exercise? Ah, stare. I, um, uh, I still occasionally will go. There's a parks in, in Los Angeles. Climbing stairs is a big form of exercise. And different parks have these long stairs that go all the way up a mountain. And uh, I, I used to do that regularly. I don't so much anymore because uh, I have bad knees. But uh, I still like to go out and do that. In fact, I, I have to tell this, a friend of mine, uh, when he was diagnosed with cancer, he was a very inactive person. So I used to go to his house and pick him up and say, okay, we're going to get exercise. So I explained the stairs and how, you know, it's just really, if you make, when you make it up to the top, it's just a great feeling. So he said, okay. So he went with me and there was a long winding road until you get to the stairs when you can actually see them. So we go and we turn the corner to the stairs and he looks, holy shit, you said stairs. I never thought it would be like that. (laughs) (laughs) And did he do it? I counted them. There were 200 and some steps. And he did it, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did. We stopped a couple of times, but he did it. (laughs) That's great. See, it's that accountability. What's one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now? There's got to be four. Four things? My wife, my two children, and my one grandson. Beautiful. And where can people find out more about your work and the book? My website, BillAaron.com. And Aaron is with one A, -A B-I-L-L-A-R-O-N.com. And they can see, you know, examples of the various portfolios I've done. And there's a contact page. They can send me an email and I'll be happy to correspond with anyone that writes. Well, I love your work. I love looking at it. I love reading this book. And I just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Haley. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. You're a great interviewer. You're fun to speak with. And I really enjoyed it. That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, 
The sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.